Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Join me at the 10th Annual Media Excellence Awards on January 18th in Beverly Hills, California. The attendees and I will be celebrating innovation and leadership in technology and entertainment. There are 20 award categories with 1,000 nominees. These awards honor those who are creating groundbreaking technology to better our lives and celebrate the hard work, determination, and brilliance in the leadership within the companies which create the new world we live in today. I will be recording nominees and winners at the awards. For tickets and more information, go to MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Yuve Daigle. He's the CEO of Lifeina. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing, Kevin? Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what, what you guys are doing is actually super important and, and much needed. But maybe before we kind of get into life in a box, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, well, when I was a kid, I moved every four years. I've got a German father, Swiss mother. I was born in New Zealand. Wow. Then I went to, yeah, it's a bit complicated. Then I went to Europe and then I went to Mobile, Alabama. Real okay. deep down south. Sure. Then I ended up in Chicoutimi, Quebec, sure. which is a tiny little town. And then I arrived in South Africa when I was about 16 years old. And my parents retired in South Africa. So that's when people ask me, basically, I say I'm South African because that's where I did my university. I got married, settled down, started my first businesses. My real adult life started up in South Africa. And then for the last 15 years, I've been living in Paris, France. Okay, so... Walk me through kind of your because you took a bachelor of music at University of Cape Town, correct? <laughs> I so, can't believe you found that found out found that out. Oh well, no, it's all good, man. But I, I'm curious, what got you kind of passionate about music early on, and why did you decide to kind of go into that? Well, I was one of those irritating children who could play anything, and basically <laughs> from the age uh, from the age of twelve, thirteen, I was a full time concert pianist. Okay. Until the age of 26, you know, classical pianist. And then at the age of 26, I basically destroyed my right arm in an accident. So my, my right arm is kind of paralyzed. So, uh, I mean, I can move it, but I just can't spend 12 hours a day behind the piano. So I recycled myself into the medical industry, and I fell in love with what I was doing. I still, even 25 years later, wake up in the morning, and I can't wait to get to work. It's just that's, so exciting what we're doing. No, that's, that's great. So... You've done a ton of stuff and we don't have enough time to kind of dive into each thing. And I, I think kind of what you're doing with Life in a Box is more important anyway. But walk us through kind of your career in, in the medical space right up until you decided to kind of create Life in a Box. Okay, I'll, I'll make it as short as possible. I mean, originally I got involved into medical diagnostics by accident okay. because my... My father-in-law's cousin is the inventor of the digital thermometer. So oh, wow. that's how I, yeah, I mean, K.Y. Lin, he invented, you know what I mean by digital thermometer, little pen-type thermometer? Sure, yeah. 
So he, my father-in-law came back from a family reunion and told me, oh, look, my cousin invented this, and he showed me a digital thermometer. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because it was really the time where people were starting to talk about baby boomers, about having to take care of the elderly generation. People were starting to live longer and longer. So I said, all right, you know, medical sounds like a really nice place to be. And it turned out that I was really, really interested in medicine and the fundamental of medicines. And I personally became an expert in cardiovascular disease, well, in, in an arcane subject called peripheral arterial disease. And I, I started getting doing more and more research. And then we started a company called Microlife, okay. which ended up being the world's largest small diagnostics medical manufacturer. And uh, then I got involved in a French company called Spengler, which according to French legend is the inventor of the blood pressure monitor. According to Americans, it's Tychos. Italians say it's Karatkov. I mean, every country claims to be the inventor of the blood pressure monitor. <laughs> but the French legend says that in 1907, Emil Spengler invented the blood pressure monitor. So I bought them in 2005 when they were 98 years old. Wow. And that was quite an interesting thing because by buying them in terms of marketing, I became the inventor of the blood pressure monitor. Interesting. Because, you know, sure. and so uh, I've spent two years to clean up the company and bring it up into the 21st century, just tidying up the, the work processes and the R&D processes. And then uh, in 2007, I did a centenary of the blood pressure monitor. And then uh, I resold Spengler in 2008 because in, in 2008, we had a, a magic event that happened to us in the industry is that we, I bought my first iPhone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know it sounds crazy, but. I still distinctly remember that magic moment when you open the iPhone and it's delivered in, inside that beautiful oh, yeah. white box, you know, it's just, and it's, it's like a jewel. Oh, I remember, was, man. We talked about it, I think, at work for oh, like God, every was just day so for like probably <laughs> since they kind of like announced it to when they shipped it. Like it was, we talked it was, about it for like six, eight months, like every day, all day at work. I remember it. We must have drove people but it, crazy. It, it, it honestly was the first time I'd ever seen a product like that that was so systematically perfect, not just sure. in function, but also in offer in the way that it was presented. And really what struck me is that it was delivered without an instruction book and with the battery preloaded. So you intuitively knew you just had to press that button and it would work. And I remember being seduced by that concept and thinking, I would, I would like to make medical devices as easy to use as that. Sure. So I started getting involved in this whole process of redesigning more intuitive devices for elderly people with bigger screens, easier to use. And eventually we just thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have a screen like the iPhone? Which, again, today sounds like an obvious thing because... Today, Connected Health has become the nirvana of new business. Sure. But in 2008, it wasn't really possible to connect to the iPhone because the protocol hadn't been open yet. Sure. So we thought it was a cool concept. So we approached the whole Apple company and then eventually all the Androids and to talk to them about the idea of connecting medical devices to the phone. And that was a very a, quite a turning point in the industry because... The first reaction was that, well, the only people who use iPhone are young, trendy geeks like Kevin, <laughs> sure, whereas yep. you know, people who suffer from hypertension are elderly people. So we're creating a product for people who are never going to really buy it. But the Apple company thought it was quite an interesting way to show the infinite capacities of the, of the mobile phone. And I think they were already preparing the iPad at the time. 
So they gave us the right to register the iHealth brand and to start this whole connected health revolution, which we started in 2009. And then, as you know, in 2010, all the magic words started coming out, quantified self, e-health, m-health, you know, sustainable health, all these kind of beautiful expressions. And when I mean it was a turning point for me, it was really, you could define it, because for 20 years, I'd been setting sickness. I'd been setting hypertension, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, just crap that people don't like to buy. Fair you know? enough. Okay. And, <laughs> and then suddenly, as soon as we launched iHealth, we were selling health. And it's a lot easier to sell health than it is to sell sickness. Sure. Because people buy health because they want to buy it. Of course, the other side of the medal side of the medal is that most people today who buy connected devices don't really need them. They buy them because they think they're cool and it's an affirmation of performance. But still, I mean, iHealth very quickly became a really, really big company, and uh, I ran it. I ran I moved to Europe, back to Europe in 2013, ran iHealth Labs Europe, and rolled it out in about 25 different countries. And then last year, I resigned from iHealth because it had become less interesting for me in terms of R&D. And I started a project that I'd always wanted to start, which was a life in a project. And the life in a project was itself the result of another accident. Sure. So so walk us through that kind of happy accident into creating kind of life in a... <laughs> well, actually, the best technologies are really quite often defined by personal needs. I mean, when sure. you need something yourself. And nothing is really invented Everything is just the, result, the next step of the evolution of technology. Very, only two or three times in the last 50 years we've had really breakthrough technologies, and like the internet or sure. the computer, for instance. But, but generally, when you invent a new medical device, it's just a betterment of what was there before. And a couple of years ago, when I moved to Paris, my brother Olaf in New Zealand, uh, he came to visit me in France because it was cool to have a brother living in Paris. Sure. And... Uh, He's an uh, insulin-dependent diabetic. There's a lot of them in our family. And I don't know if you know that people with diabetes basically hate to travel because insulin always has to, it always has to be kept cool. Sure. So they're always walking around with gel packs and cooler bags and all this kind of stuff. And the trip from New Zealand is quite a long one because you always basically have to go via Singapore or Hong Kong. Okay. And it's basically a 30-hour trip to go to New Zealand. It's the wow. other side of the world for us. And so my brother came here, and uh, he doesn't speak a word of French. Okay. Not one. <laughs> okay. And uh, he went to a little hotel in the south of France to visit some, to, just to, to be a tourist. Sure. And he checked into a hotel, and contrary to what you might believe, Kevin, not all innkeepers in France speak English. Sure. All right. Okay. So, <laughs> so when he arrived in his hotel, there wasn't any a fridge in his room to put his insulin so my brother is a habitual traveler. He's used to these kind of things. He just went down to reception, and he handed, his, he handed in his incident to the reception so they could put it in the kitchen fridge. The result of which, at 11 o'clock at night, when he came to get his incident, somebody had stuck it in the freezer. Right. All right? Ruining and the problem it, was, correct? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You cannot freeze incident. It develops crystals, which are really, really uncomfortable to inject. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and, uh, and the problem with incident is that it's a vital disease. It's a vital drug. If you don't, it's not a question, oh, I'll take a little bit more later. If you don't have it, you die. Sure, yeah. That, that's the bottom line. So luckily, we were in France. And the one thing you can say about the French healthcare system is that it, everything works. Sure. So as soon as they realized what the problem was, they phoned the local police. 
He phoned the local pharmacy. They opened up the night pharmacy. They always have in every village, they have a night pharmacy that you can open 24 hours a day. And on call, I I think it's called on call in the US or... Uh, Something like that, yeah. Anyway, so 20 minutes later, he received fresh insulin. The efficacy of the French healthcare system was amazing. Wow. So no, no harm done. So, but he came back to Paris and he told me about this moron. I mean, he, that's not the word that he used. Sure. <laughs> that frozen his insulin. Yep. <laughs> Again, I mean, you know, the thing is, Kevin, when you have a chronic disease, a chronic disease is something that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Sure. There is no cure for a chronic disease. Yep. So anybody with a chronic disease is defined by his lifestyle. So anything that makes his life easier, better, uh, easier place to live or more normal in parentheses becomes essential. So my brother came back and he told me about this moron who'd frozen his insulin. And really, just for fun, while we were busy drinking a bottle of red wine, we decided we were scribbling the idea of making a little fridge the size of a Motorola. I don't know if you remember those first uh, yeah. Motorola's, uh, the, the, the my, slightly my size of a one. Yeah, I remember. Yes, they were like a brick. The size of a brick. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I mean, the problem is we were defined by the length of the insulin pen, which is about 17 centimeters long. Right. So that was, uh, you know. And uh, so on paper, we designed the idea of uh, a little miniature fridge. And on paper, it worked. We we worked out how to keep it cool. Uh, We worked out the best way to to keep it cool would be to use a thing called the Peltier effect. Okay. That was invented by a French scientist called Jean Athanase Peltier. Only French people have got names like Athanase, which is quite cool. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so he, he discovered that if you, in fact, weld cubes, uh, little cubes of metal together of different density and you pass an electric current through it, the friction between the metals caused by the electricity will produce super heat on one side and super cold on the other. That's cool. What is vulgarly today called the Peltier effect. And historically, Peltier effects were not really used in the industry because they were notoriously unstable. Okay. If you had the the slightest particle of air between the metallic cubes, the air would expand at a faster rate than the rest and the thing would just split and stop working. Okay. So normally you don't use a petty effect for anything that needs more than 80 hours of continuous use. Okay. So, but we really hadn't thought about that when we were making the prototype. We just really wanted to make a device for us to use. And on paper, it, it worked. So we literally made a, a prototype with bits and of cardboard and string. And I stole the battery from my Sony videoscope. I'm a video cam. <laughs> and literally, we made a... But it was just for us, for fun. Sure. You know, it was like two brothers engineers were just dicking around. I mean, playing around. Sorry, I should dip you. That's that all good. <laughs> you know, we're just playing around. We just made this prototype. And actually, the prototype worked really, really well. It was really a cool little device. And um, we started doing a bit of research. And we discovered something amazing is that, in fact, there's about 4% of the population... of the worldwide population that is prisoner of this medication. We're talking about people who have multiple sclerosis, arthritis, Crohn's disease, um, uh, diabetes, cancer. There's there's a total of 144 diseases that use medication that are thermosensitive. And not only are these people prisoners of their medication in the sense that they can't travel because the medication has to be kept between two and two. When I say they can't travel, they can, but it's really more complicated than for, for normal people. Sure. And, but the other secondary issue is that many of these diseases are considered to be shameful diseases. I mean, if you ask anybody, anybody who has 
multiple sclerosis. People don't like to talk about the fact that they have multiple sclerosis or that the fact that they have a cancer or the fact that they have arthritis or Crohn's disease, which is a crappy little disease. Sure. Uh, so, and a, a lot of these people, they go to work and they don't take their medication with them at work because they don't want to put their medication in the fridge at work for everybody to know that they're sick. Sure. So the result of that is that they leave the medication at home and so they don't take the medication on time, which means they have fluctuations in their levels of medication. And this is a phenomenon called non-adherence or non-compliance to medication. And non-compliance to medication costs, in the U.S. alone, $350 billion. Wow. In France, it's about 9.5 billion euros, so about $10 million. It's a, and it is a holy grail for any healthcare system, social security system, Anything we can do to actually make sure that people take the medication on time sure. is just an amazing bonus for any insurance company uh, and medical aid. So we decided, uh, after doing all this research, we decided that there was actually really something to do because the first prototype, we'd sent it to the MHART Create the Future competition in okay. the United States, a comp yeah. competition run by the NASA. Yeah. And Literally, we sent it in at the last minute. Okay. You know, for you know, it was just a little thing that we'd done during the weekend. We sent it in, and we won the second prize. Wow! Well, congrats, I mean, <laughs> man. That's that's incredible. That's awesome. I mean, we won against guys who'd made like artificial arms made out of titanium, like Terminator Two kind of stuff. Wow. You know? And we arrived with this little handmade prototype, and we won the second prize. And then CNBC did a whole story on it because for them it was nice copy as well with my. My brother in New sure. Zealand came to France. He nearly died. You know, it was just a nice story. Sure, sure. And uh, so we started getting literally a million, not millions, but literally thousands, tens of thousands of emails and messages from people asking about this product. And what struck us the most is that the people wouldn't say, how much does it cost? The question would be, where can I buy it? Yeah, fair enough. Because, again, it comes back to the fact that if you are – if you have a chronic disease, you are defined by your lifestyle. And if you know something's going to make it better, you don't even ask the question. Yeah. So that was the it's whole like story. Prices, and then, right? Of course. You yeah, just yeah. you know you're going to have to buy it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, of course. I've always worked on making products of really great value and offer lifetime warranties on everything that I manufacture. But really, the whole point of doing this is that I really wanted to make a product that was absolutely perfect in every single way. You know, Kevin, it's the, this is the fourth... I think large business that I'm going to start, but on this one I put all the dots on all the eyes to make a really absolutely perfect product from every sense. That from the packaging, which is made out of chlorine-free recycled paper, to even the assembly, I'm having it assembled by handicapped people in France. So I'm extruding all the components. I'm ext I've redesigned it to be like a Lego system, so you can go chuck, 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 and just clip it together. That's awesome. I'm having all the components manufactured in Eastern European countries, the plastic extrusion, because it's basically impossible to do plastic extrusion in France. It's just too expensive. Okay. So I'm doing the, the, the manufacturing of the components in Eastern Europe, bring them into France, and then having it assembled by handicapped people here, which is really cool. That's great. It costs, about, it costs 3 or $4 more on the product. But at the same time, we give jobs to people who need it, need it a lot more than you and me do. So, which is, sure. yeah. you know, and Jen, I don't know if you remember. Sorry, I tend to talk a lot, Kevin. No, no, it's good. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear the host talk. Nobody wants to hear the guest. So keep going, man. So, uh, I don't know if you remember when Steve Jobs launched the iPod. Yeah. You know, oh, when he yes. did that, and he stood there in front of the people, and he was holding this beautiful device in his hand. And he said, "This is not a music player." 
It is not an MP3. It is a tool for the heart. And if you can touch the hearts of people, the possibilities are infinite. Sure. That's text over what he said. And this is really what, I, what I'm trying to do now. I, I work a lot on what I call the wow factor. I want people to systematically fall in love with my product. So that for me, the attention to detail is of utmost importance. That everything has to be perfect from the way it's packaged to the feeling when you open it. And you, just have, you must be systematically delighted when you open a product. And it's served us in great stead so far because since I've launched uh, Life Inner, now we're on our ninth generation of prototypes, we'll enter full production at the beginning of next year. We've basically won every single possible award that it was possible to win in Europe so far. So sure. we've Congrats, won. Congrats, man. That's awesome. And yeah, yeah. It's, a, <laughs> well, and it's, it's a, beautiful, be right? Like you were, you yeah. were showing me just over video, like we're obviously in different countries right now, but you know, like it looks beautiful. People can go to lifeinna.com and, and, and check out, you know, photos of, of the product and whatnot and get their hands yeah. on it kind of in the new year. But I, I, I think it's, it's great. And, and just to your kind of, just to back up for a second, I think um, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but and, and people can, again can kind of go look at it. But you could basically fit it in your carry-on or backpack, or, or, or like it is pretty small, right? And it's easy to travel with, and obviously that's Absolutely. super important. But I think just to kind of stress that again, that you can fit it in kind of stuff that you're already carrying when you're traveling. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, uh, the entire device is nine centimeters high. I don't know how much that is in inches. I'm sorry. But, sure. Uh, no, it's all good. Yeah. Well, nine I'm, I'm centimeters in Canada, high. so I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the conversion would be like, Google, let me Google that. <laughs> it's nine centimeters high, about 10 centimeters deep, and about 19 centimeters wide. So it's basically the size of a brick, of sure. a house brick. Sure. You know, so, but that's... Uh, I did that because uh, that's what I call life in a box. And in the box, you can put enough medication for a whole month. Wow, that's awesome. You know, so I've already developed now life in a tube, which is a single tube version, which I'll be releasing sometime in the middle of next year. And that literally is a fridge that you can put inside the pocket of your jacket just for a single pen Very of cool. whatever medication that you're taking. The, the, I mean, I wish, Kevin, I could snap my fingers and make one universal product that would be perfect for every single situation but unfortunately people are going to need different kinds of solutions sure. for different kinds of trips yeah well the other thing too that i think that you could do and i'm sure you've already already thought of is just even just like traveling with kids for like milk or breast milk or, or just kind of anything that you need to keep for for long periods of time right kind of cold makes sense it's, that it's, you could do it's, too it's eventually it's it's possible but again, I have to look at the economics. I mean, to actually sure. spend a hundred bucks on a little fridge to travel with breast milk is maybe not really worthwhile. But I'll, I'll ask you a question in my turn. You know, uh, Kevin, that every year in the U.S. alone, between 1,200 to 1,300 people die following an organ transplant because when they get the organ, the organ is rotten. You know. Oh, wow. So you know, yeah. because you know when they, they they transplant organs, they just take a bucket of ice and they throw it inside, and then they run as fast as they possibly can. Interesting. You know, so, so now that I've developed the technology that can produce the cold for much longer and sure. a much more in a much more stable, I'm going to apply it to new to other uh, gotcha. vectors like organ transplant and that kind of stuff. No, that's and that cool. was quite an interesting challenge for me because, as I told you earlier. The Peltier effect is only was limited to about 80 hours of working time sure. before you had to switch it off. And I couldn't afford to switch off my, my, my device. 
So uh, we developed, that is the strength of the product, we developed a new way to produce Peltier effects under vacuum, which are now 100% stable. We're now on about 9,800 hours of continuous use. Wow. So if we've, if we've lasted nearly 10,000 hours, I think it'll last forever. Sure. So if I remember correctly, when we kind of chatted before, you can also obviously like plug in the thing to, to kind of charge, obviously to recharge. But like if you're on a flight where you could plug the thing in, worst case, you just plug the thing in, right? Uh, well, that's the, the battery thing is a is a very interesting conundrum because I've made it as flexible as it could possibly be. So you can okay. plug it on any power source, 110 to 240. So anywhere in the US and uh, Europe, you can just plug it into the wall power. Sure. You can plug it into a cigarette car lighter in your car. Sure. Uh, you know, and uh, you cannot plug it on the USB to operate, but you can charge the battery with a USB. Got you. Okay. 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 So, uh, but the, because at the beginning of the year, I had to redesign the product. Originally, I wanted to actually start manufacturing uh, sometime in September this year, but at the beginning of the year, we had to rethink our strategy in terms of design because since there's a uh, there's a bit of push on the whole anti-terrorism thing, especially in the U.S. Sure. And it's becoming more and more difficult to take batteries on air airlines. They're sure. even talking in certain airlines to ban laptop computers. Yep. So at the beginning of the year, I redesigned the product. My original product had an integrated battery inside the product. And I thought that might cause pr tr uh, trouble in an airplane. So we redesigned it to have separate battery packs okay, that can plug in. And you can plug in as many uh, battery packs as you want. So right now, we have a 3-hour, 6-hour, and 12-hour battery pack. I'm hoping that by February, when we launch, I'll also have a 24-hour battery pack. But if you want more power, you just take just an extra 24-hour battery pack. It's, it's, uh, and the beauty of it is that now people can go to work. They can go work, play, travel, go anywhere they want, anytime, knowing that their medication is always at exactly the right temperature no, and no. always next to them. Sure. That's, that's awesome, man. So I want to get a little bit more into kind of the app and, and the hardware a little bit more. Um, of course. Because I think that's well like don't get me wrong the, the hardware stuff is really cool and everything we kind of talked about but i love when people take kind of software and hardware and, and put them together so what exactly does the app do when connected to the device of course uh, as you might have heard some of my conferences i've been a bit a uh, little bit critical of the industry right now that says that anything that can be connected will be connected. And it's true. If it can be connected, it will be connected. Sure. And But the people now tend to connect things just for the sake of connecting them. And at first glance, it might seem a bit ridiculous to connect a fridge. But in fact, the, practi the practical use is just enormous. Not only will it track in real time the temperature of the medication and your battery life and all the normal things that you'd expect it to do, but remember at the beginning I told you that non-adherence to treatment, non-compliance costs $350 million, billion in the U.S. Sure. Anything that we can do to reduce that non-adherence is welcome. So the fridge not only measures the temperature and tracks your temperature and the battery life, but it will also send you reminders such as, hey, Kevin, last time you took your medication was at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Aren't you due for another shot to actually try to remind people when it's time for them to take their medication so that we, we can improve the, their adherence. Uh, it's same basic principle. I mean, uh, sorry, what time is it in Canada right now? Uh, it's about it's, nine. It's about, it's 5 to 10 a.m. Ah, so it's quite early in the morning, yeah. yeah. 
But I'm pretty sure if I asked you at 2 o'clock this afternoon, Kevin, what time exactly did you have your last cup of coffee? You would say, well, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It was Most either, people don't. It was probably either within the last half hour or probably four or five hours ago. <laughs> yeah, but you don't. You can't tell me that it was yeah, 9 no or 5, 9.15. Yeah. That's the whole no, thing. I would have because no idea. It, because it's an automatism. You do it without thinking. Mm -hmm. And many times people who take chronic medication, so like somebody with insulin who has to prick himself three to eight times a day, he doesn't remember quite often, oh, did I take my medication at lunchtime? I can't remember. Yeah. And the whole, it's not that they want, don't want to take the medication. It's just that they forget. And the whole idea of having the life in an app that's there as a companion to improve their adherence is a huge bonus for insurance companies. Sure. Yeah. No, then not to mention great. the app looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, like I, I'm just kind of looking at the, the screenshots that you kind of have online right now. And yeah, they, it looks great to me. So oh, like, those are, that, that's those old stuff, old, the new stuff. stuff. Yeah. Well, but, but that's the thing, though, right, is it, it's kind of an evolution, right? And I think that's the fun part about this whole thing. You said you're kind of on, you know, you're, you're a few prototypes in, you know, you're, you're constantly working on the app. Like that's kind of the whole thing is kind of fascinating, right? And you're moving into kind of other verticals that we just kind of talked about. So I think that's great, man. I, I, I think that's that's actually really cool. So I, I know you kind of said um, people could, or you're going to start actually making these things kind of early in the new year. Um, can people kind of pre-order these now? And, and, and when do you think roughly you'll start shipping kind of first quarter next summer? Absolutely. Right. Uh, I must admit to you, you know, Kevin, uh, I've been doing, a, I've made a lot of products in my life for okay. Microlife, for Spangler, for iHealth, some with incredible success. And unfortunately, I think that I made a strategic error with Lifeina because at the beginning, of, right now, I'm really, really strong on B2B. I'm signing contracts with pharmaceutical companies, with insurance companies for sure. Lifeina. But I'm also greatly concerned about B2C, business to consumers. Sure. And when I launched for business to consumers, I said to myself, oh, what's the best way to communicate to consumers? And that's the, the crowdfunding. Sure. So I decided to launch a, a crowdfunding camp campaign for Life Inner. And I did it and I followed all the rules. And it's the fourth campaign that I do on Indiegogo. All of the first, uh, first three were greatly, greatly successful, okay. but were not on healthcare products or sickness products. Right. And so I did everything. I, I built up the databases, social media, the whole story, shot beautiful videos, and really built a nice campaign. And we launched, launched it with great fanfare on the 14th of September. Um, uh, and uh, it was a total fiasco. You know, we, yeah, but that was, but then I, it, that, it was a fiasco from which I learned a lot because uh, on the, after one week, we'd only reached about 10% of our, of our goal. And that was a very surprise, big surprise, especially considered that we had over 8,000 people who'd already indicated that they were going to buy the product. Sure. So I went back and wrote to some of those 8,000 people who all suffered from things like multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, and those kind of things. And I asked them, well, you said you wanted to buy the product and now you had the chance to pre-order. Why didn't you? And the, the answer that I got amazed me is that they all wrote back the same thing. They said, the day that it's available on the shelf, we will be the first one to buy it. But sure. we suffer today from our chronic disease. We don't want to buy a promise for in six months. If we buy something, we want it to be effective today. So, and then I did a complete analysis of everything that's ever been done on Kickstarter, on Indiegogo. 
And if you look at that, there's never once in the history of both Kickstarter and Indiegogo been a single campaign for chronic disease that has worked. Interesting. You know? So we know that chronic disease people don't buy as a, on, on kickstarting campaign. This having been said, they can already pre-order it on Indiegogo, on the Indiegogo campaign, and will continue taking pre-orders. By, I'm expecting to start production on the 10th of February okay. of 2018, a specific date. I'm about two days ahead of schedule right now. Wow. So, awesome. we're, we're so yeah, I mean, I, I'm very half Swiss, half German in terms of planning. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> no, you, no, you can't get more. <laughs> so... And I'm expecting that uh, by the end of May, beginning of June, I'll have the first what I call off-tool samples, which are just 2,000 pieces that I will send out to the select few and the journalists and stuff. And then by end of June, I'll be in full swing production and people will be able to buy it anywhere, anytime, any place through any network. Sure. No, that that's great. So I kind of want to dive into actually kind of going through the prototyping process from kind of talking, you know, you and your brother kind of building this thing into actually kind of working with a company to kind of build these things because it's complicated, right? It's, it's not an easy process. So uh, what have you kind of learned either, you know, building kind of life in a, or, or your previous products when kind of building in the hardware space? Because I, I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially if they've never done it before. That's correct. I mean, that's, I was about to tell you, it's a lot easier for me to do it than it is for the average person because I've been doing it for the last 25 years. Sure. And for 25 years, I've been running companies and factories in Asia, in Europe, running in developing products. And it's quite an interesting process. In many ways, uh, there's an unfortunate state of the market right now that it's become in a little bit too easy now to develop new products. Okay. What I mean by that is that any moron with a good idea goes and sticks it on Kickstarter and Indiegogo because they think they can just make their own product, yep. and which means that every two days you have a new magic product that is promised on Indiegogo and on uh, Kickstarter, and this has kind of gadgetized the healthcare industry in the eyes of the medical professional. Interesting. The medical, the medical professional doesn't think of connected health. He tends to think of connected gadgets. He yeah, tends okay. to think of that uh, because there's just such a profusion of... Unassay, uh, unavailable products. I mean, the products that promise a lot but will never be delivered from the scientific point of view. Sure. And making a product, having an idea is easy. I mean, any anybody can have an idea. But then taking the idea and making it into a circular, uh, I, I'll talk about the circle uh, of uh, manufacturing to know how you're going to make it, who's going to make it, who's going to buy it, how you're going to distribute it, who are your main distributors going to... You know, there's all these questions that are linear and follow one another that all have to be treated before you even start putting pen to paper. Sure. You know, how, and again, I mean, I've been, it's a lot easier for me because I've been distributing medical devices and manufacturing medical devices for the last 25 years. So I know every single medical distributor in the world, I think, uh, that uh, if I launch a product, I know that for this kind of product, I need to phone that person for the distribution in B2B2C. Sure. And, uh, for manufacturing, I mean, the manufacturing process is changing a lot. It's changed a lot in the last, a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, in the old days, we used to make prototypes basically out of cardboard. We'd take, uh, we'd just, take, <laughs> we'd literally sculpt them out of cardboard just to, because designing it on paper is one thing, but holding something in your hand is completely different. Sure. And sometimes I'll do 10, 15 iterations of a product until I find that shape 
that I really like, just that feeling that it's just the right one that I want, and then I'll work on the electronics to fit inside. The yeah, electronics sure. must be slave to the actual product itself because basically you can do anything you want inside the product, it, uh, but outside is very, very important that you just have that feeling of oneness, that the, the product is just systematically perfect, that you, you just want to hold it, it just feels so beautiful, and that you can only do with designers and being incredibly critical and having fights with your own designers. Because again, if you, I, don't, I hardly design anymore. Okay. Because it, it's, uh, with my brother Olaf, we have a, a company called CDS, Complete Design Services, where our subcontract design out to students, PhD students, because the problem is, if you ask me, Kevin, to design a blood pressure monitor, it will look like a blood pressure monitor. Because I've designed 220 blood pressure monitors in my life, and I know that that's how you make a blood pressure monitor. But if I ask you to make me a blood pressure monitor, you might do something completely stupid, sure. but you might also do something that I would not have thought about because you don't have the same industrial baggage yep. that stops me from thinking creativity. Sure. Uh, yep. And since I've, actually, since I've start, stopped myself designing, I can have a much more critical eye. And sometimes I fight with my designers. It's, it's really difficult to actually get people to see what is in inside your inner eye that you totally. really, you know, it's, uh, yep, totally it, and sometimes I fight about a shade of blue or about uh, <laughs> the size of a hole or about the color of the little rubber feet that are under, underneath the product, you know, just really irritatingly stupid details. But for me, every single thing counts. So, I make prototypes, and now it's become much easier because now we do 3D printing. Sure. Everything we, my brother Olaf is one of the world's uh, top experts in 3D uh, printing and mechatronics. Actually, right. if you want to see something really, really cool, go look at Odd Guitars, ODD Guitars. That's uh, our guitars. My brother and myself. We 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 print electric guitars. Which are really? awesome. Yeah. Okay, I'll check yeah. that out. That's sweet, man. That's great. Oh, you know, I mean, we we it's we make about three a month only. But I mean, you know, we completely three D print guitars in any shape, and so you know. So uh, now that we've got three D printing, we can design it and print it right there and then. So we can. It's a lot easier for us to have the right feeling of what it's going to feel feel like, even if the weight is not correct. The three D printing does give us uh, makes life a lot easier. And so we make more and more prototypes. So now, um, when I say this is my ninth generation of prototypes, the one that I showed you, sure. this is my ninth generation of functional prototypes. But before that, we might have made 20, 30 different shapes, movement, just to actually make sure that we, were, that we had the right concept. And once we have the prototype, then we start, uh, for this product, as I said, I'm manufacturing it differently, I'm sourcing them components in Eastern Europe, so I'll find the right manufacturer to extrude the plastic or to uh, extrude the aluminum uh, sleeve around the product. And I have to basically be a uh, conductor of an orchestra, which changes my job as a pianist. So I, <laughs> I, I just, I have to get all these, all these things and make sure everything arrives at the same time. But for that, I have surrounded myself with some incredibly wonderful people uh, like Lily, who's our CFO and Chief Logistics Officer, she she manages. You you have to delegate that kind of stuff. I just can't do it all myself. And she ensures that everything arrives here at the same time, at the right time, the right product. Again, if you're missing one p one type of screw, your production can't go on. 
you know sure. it's, uh, and uh, again so it's quite complicated to manage and uh, but the reason why i really wanted to do it here and be in charge of my own production is that over the last five or six years i've seen a decline in the quality of my, our productions in china because we are starting to suffer from them it's our fault i mean we we have put so much pressure on chinese manufacturing right now sure. that a lot of the manufacturers are, are basically walking on a knife's edge you know they're just trying to survive trying to make us happy and so we have a, a definite problem of what is called today quality fade in products that is coming from china but by quality fade i mean that for instance if you if you leave a photo in the sun you won't notice the difference after one day or after two days but if you leave it for a week then you suddenly notice that your picture is completely yellow and has changed color Sure. In the same way as in Chinese factories, uh, the quality fade problem is really rampant right now. For instance, you'll order a product and the first product is perfect. And the second production, instead of using 0.8 millimeter wire, they use 0.7 millimeter wire because it's 50 cents cheaper a ton, okay. you know, kind of stuff. Sure. And then instead of using five screws, they use four screws. And then instead of using four screws, they use a glue gun. And it all works. But eventually, when you have a quality problem and you open the device... And it's all shit inside because, you know, the changes have been so imperceptible sure. that you haven't actually noticed. It's only when you actually take a close look, you realize, hey, man, that's not what I ordered for four, six months ago. And it's incredibly fast now because the lifespan of products has also become much shorter. And because since the advent of Internet and online sales, basically the product life cycle lifespan is about 12 to 18 months. Okay. And then we have to make a newer, better, faster, cheaper model with more features, with more tra-la-la on it. Sure. You know, so, and, uh, which is why I can perfectly well offer a lifetime warranty on my products. I mean, because yeah. historically I have a 0.0027% return ratio. So it's so negligible, it's not even worth mentioning. So you just sure. replace the product. And because anyway, nothing, in, nothing that's older than 18 months or two years is ever going to get fixed. Sure. Just because the newer model is going to be better, faster, cheaper, more wonderful. So, and so uh, the manufacturing has to live with that. And uh, we have to be really be careful in how we produce perfection if we want to make perfection. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Sure. And then obviously as the new Android version and iOS version come out every year too, you need to update the software to work with the new hardware. And it's just like a constantly never-ending cycle, right? Absolutely. That was a very vicious circle at the time, but I'm seeing now an end to this issue, maybe in about a year's time where we're going to start having universal language. I think in a year, a year and a half, we're going to start really leaning towards web-based apps sure, that are not yeah. dependent on Android or iOS because it is a ridiculous war of uh, war of nothing war over nothing it just serves no purpose and more and more as as i said told you earlier everything that can be connected will be connected sure. and as soon as everything is connected we're going to start having to have universal languages and universal alphabets for writing and universal for writing code that's that's already the industry is going in that direction and i'll give it another 2 years same problems with data safety Right now, everybody's shaking the ghost of data safety because it's a brand new, brand new thing. I don't know if it's data safety a very big thing in Canada or not. Oh yeah, very much so. One of the biggest agencies just got hacked, actually. So it's a kind of a nightmare right now. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah. Again, I mean, for for healthcare now, we have this 
upside down, upside down problem where everybody's shaking the ghosts of data yeah. safety. But in reality, I mean, I've been working in healthcare for the last 25 years. I have never once had a patient who refused to share his data as long as he knows where, why he's sharing it and, sure. and he gets something in exchange. The problem is right now in healthcare, we have a semantic problem on how we express the questions. So if I ask you right now, Kevin, Kevin, are you scared that I'm going to take your medical data and sell it to the medical aides to make you pay more money? Of course, you're going to say yes. But if I ask you, Kevin, would you accept to share your anonymous blood pressure data with the Heart Foundation to do epidemiological research? Yeah, sure. Like of course. Kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we tend to emphasize the negative side rather than the positive side. And so, and there's, there's a new movement that's arriving in that is called data for good. And yeah, okay. again, well, as soon as people know why they're sharing, basically, I think sharing your medical data in a couple of years will be the same thing as doing an organ donation. Not everybody does it, but not many people are against it, if you see what I mean. No, that, that makes total sense. And I, I think also, too, like, if I could share my data with, like, my family or, or like, friends or, or some, like, the people you kind of trust, whether it's your doctor, care provider, etc., like, it, it only makes your treatment better, whatever you're going through, right? Or of if course. you can monitor, you know, I can monitor my parents eventually if I need to because they That's need to correct, take yeah. something. Like, like, it's just kind of a no-brainer, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, even on the, the life in a box, I've just inserted the possibility of putting a SIM card sure. specifically for that purpose so that your children can know when... Now imagine, again, it's, it's a, it's a diff diff difficult ethical question, Kevin. Do you think that you should be able to monitor the whereabouts of your grandmother who has Alzheimer's? Of course, right? Like but she's not, she's not a criminal. How dare you? You know, you know, yeah. it's just this, this ethical question. But again, I really think that in reality, the visceral response is, of course, I want to do it. Sure. And of course, I want to be able to monitor the fact that my grandfather is taking his drugs on time. Totally. Or I want to monitor when he falls down or when he sends a distress uh, signal. So I've inserted all of those possibilities in life in a box so that people can follow it from a distance using a SIM card if they want to do it. And uh, again... The the data safety, it's a it's a fake problem right now. The I think as soon as everything becomes connected, we'll find a natural differentiation between what is important and what is not important. No, I I hundred percent agree with you. I, I I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think even just cutting down on errors of the wrong medication getting given to patients that shouldn't need it, right? Like if I can share, basically. You know, I, obviously, I can't share my entire history right now. But one day, if I could share my entire medical history with the person that's treating me kind of live, that that's just better for me and the person treating me, right? Like, Absolutely, and and not only that, but it's better for the insurance. Yeah. Instead of having sure. an adversarial relationship with your insurance, imagine if your insurance came up to you and said, "Hey, Kevin, you have diabetes. Here, I have a solution for you for your diabetes. Diabetes is going to cost you less." It's going to cost me less, yep. and I'm going to become your partner in managing your disease, which means that you're going to stay with me for longer, sure. which means that you're going to be along. Everybody wins yep. as soon as everybody's open about data. So, again, sorry, I, I know we're digressing from no, the subject I, at hand, but it's, good, it's, it's, it's uh, for me, a major preoccupation. I've been talking quite a bit about it on international conferences about this this problem of perception that we have on the importance of data. Because even, you know, all right, you're young, handsome, young children, beautiful, Kevin, you're, you're, you're a, a man of a man, all right? Do you know the total value of your medical data, Kevin? 
Yeah, if I you had no to put idea. a financial value on it, a monetary... It's probably not worth that much. $1.67, yeah, as exactly. estimated by Harvard University. Sure. As soon as I know that it's your, your data, but as soon as your data becomes anonymous, sure. then it becomes priceless yep. because it can be used for epidemiological research, for medical research. Kevin, it can be used to save a life. Totally. You know, that's, then, then it, becomes, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, uh, uh, okay. so we need to set, you know, get rid of all these urban legends about, uh, about healthcare, which are, are still rampant. Again, but that's also due and partly, remember earlier I talked to you about this problem that we have of gadgetization of healthcare that yeah. now has become too easy. We're also having gadgetization of communication in healthcare. Interesting. Today, anybody with internet self-proclaims himself a digital expert. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not pointing any fingers. It's just generally that I'm finding that there's uh, a lot of people who talk about healthcare as if they were healthcare experts sure. and they propagate, they say, oh, that's good and that's not good. But in fact, they don't have the qualification to be able to talk about what's good and what's bad. Sorry, I shouldn't say things like that. It's really bad. No, you know. no, I, I, <laughs> no I, I think it's true in any industry though, right? Like what yeah, makes of somebody like, like a, an expert in their industry? Well, a lot of times it's self-proclaimed, right? So yeah. I, I totally get that. But sadly, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. So... Let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about Life in a Box and, and everything you guys are doing. Well, the easiest is just to go to the website to lifeinner.com or to write to me at uve at lifeinner.com. I'm a very likable and friendly chap and I answer all the emails. You know, so it's, uh, and uh, Kevin, it's the first time in my life that I've ever made a product where people actually thank me for selling them a product. And that, that actually is quite something amazing. That, That's uh, great, man. You know, every day we receive hundreds of messages of people that don't say how much does it cost. They just say, where can I buy it? You know, and the, sec the second most important question that I get is, why wasn't it made before? And sure. it just, it took a unique set of circumstances. My brother being ill, uh, nearly dying because somebody froze his medication and me having a medical company. And they all gelled together to make this incredibly perfect product. No, that, that makes, a, makes a lot of sense. But I, again, I really appreciate taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. And the same to you, Kevin. You come to Paris. I'll buy you a beer. I would All right. love to come to Paris. All right, man. Have a good night. Have a great day, man. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.